It was August 15, 2021. I was going to the office. It was morning. I didn't know what's happening. When I entered the office, I still remember everyone was just running. People were running. They were leaving. There was a supervisor there. She was shocked to see me. She said the Taliban entered Kabul. Anything could happen. So I took some money from the bank. I bought cooking oil, flour, rice, fruit, and vegetables. I I thought things might be closed for a while, and I needed to provide for my family. At home, everyone was crying. We were worried and shocked and crying. We were hoping there would be no war. We were home, just watching the news. And then we learned that the government collapsed and the president left the country. That was the worst news. I was thinking and crying. how to leave the country. I called an American friend and asked him to help me out. He said he would try. He tried, but it was not possible. For three days and three nights, I slept only seven, eight hours total. I keep thinking that my, that maybe when I feel asleep, that when I would wake up, then everything would be normal again. Unfortunately, that was not the reality. In early August 2021, after two decades of occupation, the United States hastily and chaotically withdrew from Afghanistan. Just a few days later, on August 15, 2021, the Taliban captured Kabul and took over the country. There was chaos and violence as thousands and thousands of Afghans rushed to Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul, desperate to get on a flight out of the country before it was too late. Many of those fleeing had worked hard for or on behalf of the U.S., for the previous government of Afghanistan, or for international organizations, or they were the family of people who had done so. They were terrified about life in Afghanistan under the Taliban. Families were separated in the tumult at the airport. People died. Many who were not able to get on one of the few flights out went into hiding, terrified of what the Taliban might do to them. It was a sudden and terrible upending of lives, like the life of the Afghan man who wrote the words that opened this episode. And, as all of this unfolded, Afghan Americans in the U.S. scrambled to figure out how to get their loved ones out of harm's way. away from the reach of the Taliban. I'm Lindsay Goldford Gray. And I'm Jenny Guilfoyle, and this is Inadmissible. In this episode, we delve into the aftermath of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and we learn about the thousands and thousands of people the U.S. left behind there, and their prospects, or lack thereof, for ever getting to safety in the U.S. We're joined in this episode by immigration attorney Spojmi Naziri. So Spoojmi, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what work you do and what your background is? Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Spoojmi Nasiri and I am an Afghan-American. I came to the United States in the early 1980s with uh, my father and four siblings while my mother remained in, in Afghanistan and then in Pakistan due to the immigration related issues. I grew up in the Bay Area and I'm fluent in Pashto and Dari 
um, because of my own personal immigration experiences, I, at an early age, I wanted to be an attorney, maybe particularly an immigration attorney. Uh, I'm looking in the Bay Area and uh, I have my full law practice uh, and I represent a lot of Afghan uh, clients here in the US and also in Afghanistan. We are so appreciative for you for being here today and speaking on this episode. Um, I'm gonna ask you to take us back to August, the middle of August of 2021, um, right around the time of the fall of Kabul. What kind of phone calls were you getting at that point from Afghans? What were people asking for at that point? So with the fall of uh, Kabul on August 15, 2020, and the first calls that I started getting were my own clients uh, who you know, were either waiting in queue to get their, their interview schedule at the US Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan, or they were in the process and they were wondering if there was any way to evacuate them since they had a petition. Uh, in, the, in the next day or so, we were literally getting between uh, 150 to 300 calls a day from Afghans here and also through WhatsApp in Afghanistan, uh, wanting to file um, any sort of application that would allow them to come in, uh, which one avenue was humanitarian parole. Another, another aspect was during the mayhem of the evacuation, uh, the US State Department said there was a form that was for clients who had pending cases. And it was some sort of a visa document that was photocopied and it was a wave of those at the airport that um, Afghans were waving to get through. And what that caused was that the government or the military couldn't distinguish between those who were actually entitled to that paper and those who were photocopying it. So it caused a lot of disruption in who was being evacuated. Um, and then in the weeks to come, well, we only had a two week window. Um, and then after you know, the closing and the last plane taking off, continued in the months to, to ask for what was called a humanitarian parole. It was an application to try to evacuate um, outside from Afghanistan. And do you know what made people think that humanitarian parole would be a viable option? Was there anything the US government did to encourage people to do that? What made people think that they should pursue that? So humanitarian parole is something in, in a dire situation that you request the US government to allow someone in. Prior to the you know, uh, fall of Kabul, humanitarian parole was always available. And every year there was about 2000 applications that maybe somebody wants to get you know, treatment for cancer or medical or something or some dire situation. And every year about two to 300 are being approved. With the fall of Kabul to the Taliban, the government put on their website that this was humanitarian parole and they explained the process and the fees so because Afghans thought that the government had put it out legitimately, that they have, and they still have it up on their website, that Afghans can apply for humanitarian parole, they, you know, it increased you know, tenfold. Right now we have about 46 to 47,000 pending humanitarian parole applications, which was you know, with the encouragement from the government saying, here's the website and how to apply for it. And so that was actually the US government on website saying humanitarian parole specifically for Afghans. Exactly. On website. And they exactly. don't usually do that for other nationalities. And all of a sudden, right at this time, this, this site goes up. And then um, these applications are expensive, aren't they? 
Did they cost yes. a lot of money? Yes. Uh, one of the biggest questions that we were getting from callers is I have, you know, my, you know, five, six, seven family members. Can I just file for one as one family unit? The application is 575. And unfortunately, the answer is no. They have to file per applicant. So they can either file the fee of 575 or they can, you know, try to file a fee waiver. Early on, there's a lot of uh, in insecurity and uncertainty about getting the fee waivers. People thought, well, if I do the fee waiver, I might not get it. So I'm going to, you know, gather the money by any means and apply for each person. In good faith, they relied on that because, again, like you stated, the government put up a website saying, you know, specifically for Afghans. And so practitioners all over the country and individuals and organizations and, uh, you know, groups and, and, you know, vet groups and all sorts of nonprofit organizations were helping Afghans uh, file these applications and some of them were able to pay. Some people actually hired a private attorney. And I know that the fee per applicant for the attorney fee alone was anywhere between 500 to 2,500 per application, in addition to the 575 application. Quite a few people did do that. And so um, these applications, you know, I know you said you were getting hundreds of phone calls from people who were um, wanting to file humanitarian parole applications themselves or for their relatives. So did you talk to people about what kind of situations they were in and why they felt that it was important to do this? What, what was happening for people? Well, one of the, the biggest thing was the, the, the genuine threat for their lives. Um, as, as some people may have, may or not be aware, when the Taliban took over, they released all the prisoners. So a lot of the judges and the lawyers who had prosecuted these individuals, their lives were in danger. Minority groups were in danger. Um, those who worked with the US government, their families were in danger and they were hiding in locations. Uh, they did not get evacuated. You know, the facts are there, the large portion of those who needed to be evacuated did not get evacuated. And so there were dire needs, uh, particularly calls from WhatsApp, uh, international calls from Afghanistan. And then people here across the United States wanting to file because they genuinely feared for their for their family members' lives. And so they wanted to try to get out of the US. And did you I'm sorry file... they wanted to get out of Afghanistan to come yeah, to the US? Absolutely. Did you um, help folks file for humanitarian parole? And if so, have you gotten responses on those? Because it's been, you know, getting on a year now since since the fall of Kabul. So early on I filed maybe about two dozen. Um, and I personally, my own perspective was I didn't think the humanitarian parole was going to work. Um, I know other attorneys were like, it's the last means, let's just go ahead, do it. And, and graciously, many practitioners and many people, you know, did it pro bono, didn't charge. I didn't, I didn't charge, and that's important to state that because I wanted to do it for the clients who wanted it done, and I knew their families were genuinely uh, in danger. But the fact of the matter was that the history of humanitarian parole wasn't always large numbers. And unless the US government miraculously decided to you know, allow all these humanitarian parole to go through, um, I didn't foresee a good chance of getting it. So I did many pro bono. Um, and then when time by, I was just like, you know, it's, it's something I wanna shift my focus. And I went to visit the military bases to provide legal services. But I did do quite a few and I got a lot of requests for evidence. 
And I also have a, quite a few still pending, no answer. We did get the receipt notices, uh, but no decision. And then a couple of denials saying you didn't meet the requirements. Now, keep in mind, one of the requirements was is that um, you could file if you were inside Afghanistan, but because the US Embassy had closed in Kabul, they couldn't continue the process. So that individual had to get themselves to another country in order to continue the process. If they were approved, they would have an interview and get the FOIL, which is the approval. Um, so the challenges were with the Taliban takeover, many people couldn't get out. And then also they had to get a visa for those who were able to bribe, pay the bribes to go to Pakistan or other countries where they can continue the process. Some of my own clients have gotten to Pakistan with a visa. We're into this about what, 10, 11 months now, almost August. And uh, they're still in Pakistan because they fear for their lives, but nothing has been done with the HP. And what's it like for people who are in Pakistan or other third countries right now? Like, again, it's been a long time how is that going for people that you've been talking with? Well, I mean, in Pakistan, for those who are there, luckily, I mean, for, for those individuals, they're paying the bribes to continue renewing. Some people were able to get a visa for a year. Most got it for about two to six months. I know that um, Turkey is very harsh on their rules. So some Afghans have gotten their um, visas for, for Turkey, but within two months or so, they're going to expire. And so unless the government allows it to go through and continue to renew that visa, or they pay a bribe to someone, there's a high chance that they may be deported back to Afghanistan. So they don't have much stability, in other words, in the third country that they're in and much assurance that they're gonna be able to stay there. Absolutely, they do not have any assurances from, from those countries. And in the meantime, they in good faith relied on, on this post from the US government saying Afghans can apply for humanitarian parole uh, in the hopes that they would be able to then uh, migrate to the United States. but. Unfortunately, like I stated, we have between 46 to 47,000 pending humanitarian parole. And in the early days, uh, a few people were able to get in because they were able to show the, the pre-approval to the government to get out. As far as I know, um, to date, there haven't been any actual approvals and somebody admitted on humanitarian parole into the United States. And have you been in any discussions or talked at all with the US government about this situation? Yes, we, um, the Afghan community, about a dozen of us had actually a private meeting with the State Department along with USCIS and even Homeland Security uh, Mayorkas. And the question was, is, you know, these Afghans pay in total, you know, there's millions of dollars that were paid. They relied in good faith. They, they evacuated their families. Um, the answer was, is that humanitarian parole cannot be used as a substitute to go through the normal refugee program. And we pushed back that, you know, the government who has a website for Afghans uh, and they haven't, and why, if you're not going to accept them, why not make a statement that we are not going to approve any? Uh, the answer, there was no answer from the government. And in parallel, we have the Ukrainian, uh, the you for you which I have my clients and I'm grateful that I'm able to get my clients out I think up to date, as of yesterday, there were 55 to 60,000 Ukrainians that have come in through the humanitarian parole. So the distinction, the major distinction was, is that the, the affidavit of support, which is the I-134, you have to find a financial sponsor, it wasn't required. Um, it's an online application. They don't have to pay a fee. 
um, on and on and on. So if the government has the capability to create a program so quickly for another group, why wasn't it possible for Afghans? And the disparity is very, um, you know, apparent. Um, and again, it's not to say, you know, one deserves it more than other, but if you're gonna hold the government accountable to say, well, we can't do it because there's so much complexities, but then within a span of a couple of weeks, you come out with this elaborate program that benefits another group and you start to question it. And, and the irony is that if those, those individuals from Ukraine who filed it before the u for u program and they paid the money, they're actually refunding that fee. But where's the Afghan refund? So, uh, so, so yeah, the disparity is quite, quite drastic. And you know, we keep pushing the government collectively, many organizations, many, many, many individuals across the nation have been pushing back. And thus far, there hasn't been any answer from the government. Yeah, there's just this, that huge disparity with the um, recently begun, essentially humanitarian parole program for Ukrainians fleeing, um, fleeing the war in Ukraine. And that was set up very, very quickly. And as you said, the requirements are much less strict. There are no fees and cases are being approved and being approved quickly. And meanwhile, um, the Afghan Humanitarian Parole Program, most of the cases still haven't even, they haven't even gotten a decision despite having, as you said, paid millions of dollars, um, which was a, a huge outlay of, resources for families and people put a lot of hope into these applications and they haven't even gotten a response on them yet. Yes, and a lot of a lot of individuals that are genuinely their lives that are at risk, um, you know, have been in good faith relying on this program. And, and I would like to see that if you say, you know, what would you like the government? I would like to have them come out and make a statement. Yes, we're going to go forward or no, we're not. Did you just, and also refund those money back because a lot of people had to borrow money from other people in order to pay for the fee. So myself and many other practitioners did these cases pro bono for free, but they, the individuals still had to pay per application. And those fees that I think uh, are deserving of being refunded. Thank you so much, Bojmi. Thank you very much for having me. And um, thank you for all the work you guys are doing. So Jenny, now that we've heard from Spojny and all about her experience and those of the Afghans that she's been in contact with over the last nine months to a year, I want to actually start where she left off, and that's with Ukraine. And I want to talk about those two different parole programs, because the parole that Afghans can seek is different than the parole that Ukrainians can seek. And first, can you tell us, Jenny, what's, what's parole? That's a legal term of art, right? I, when I used to think of the word parole, I used to think of parole from prison, but that's different than yeah. immigration. And so tell us what parole is. Yeah, so he, parole is um, a way for the United States to let people into the country temporarily for some kind of emergency reason. And um, there's a form of parole known as humanitarian parole, and that's what uh, many Afghans, you know, close to 50,000 Afghans have been seeking. And that's a way for the U.S. to provide kind of temporary protection for humanitarian reasons for people 
who need to come to the U.S. for some kind of emergency reason. And parole is a temporary status um, that doesn't provide any kind of pathway to like permanent status in the U.S. in and of itself. Like it doesn't lead to a green card or anything like that. You can get uh, work authorization uh, when you have parole in the U.S., but that only lasts as long as your parole lasts. And actually humanitarian parole was the way that the U.S. brought in all the people that we did evacuate from Afghanistan uh, last year. Uh, they were brought in through humanitarian parole. Um, and so at the again, the Afghans that we've been speaking about in this episode are also looking to get humanitarian parole as a way to get into the U.S. because they um, are in immediate danger in Afghanistan. Yeah, so I think the legal term of art is for urgent humanitarian reasons or a significant public benefit, right? And so then when Kabul fell and the Taliban took over, USCIS, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, published a, a new page on their website that was humanitarian parole for Afghans. And I know that many, many, many of us that are immigration attorneys doing this work thought, oh, well, urgent humanitarian reasons. It's pretty urgent. The Taliban is seeking to find and kill many people and a significant public benefit. And I think that that term generally means significant public benefit to the United States. But the United States had a very specific relationship with Afghanistan. And so I think all of us were thinking, oh, well, the USCIS is publishing a page. They're sort of signaling that this is an appropriate means by which to seek evacuation, essentially, um, and safety for thousands of Afghans. And so we started filing. I know Vecina launched a project to get pro bono attorneys, volunteer attorneys, and others to help prepare these applications. Um, and then what happened, Jenny? Right. And then, uh, you know, close to 50,000 people have filed applications and paid enormous amounts of money um, and put in huge amounts of resources, effort, and quite frankly, hope into this program. So Spojmi talked about all the phone calls that she got. So there were people all over the United States who were scrambling to find the resources, $575 per person. And when you have a large family with like you know, eight, nine, 10 people, we're talking about a significant amount of money, not to mention the money and the effort that was then expended on finding lawyers to represent people, lawyers' time, families' time to pull together all the documents, lots of documents that have to go into these applications, and then the hope. You know, people are, many people who were left behind in Afghanistan are now in serious danger, many of them living in hiding, um, and this gave them hope filing these applications. And then uh, to date, USCIS has adjudicated, I think, fewer than 5% of these, you know, and that's after taking in well over $20 million in fees from the applications. And most of the decisions that they've given out have been denials. Um, so, you know, this is then in stark contrast to this new program that was launched that Spojmi was talking about and that you mentioned, Lindsay, um, the Uniting for Ukraine program that was launched for Ukrainians um, in the spring and it was put up very quickly. And uh, Lindsay, could you explain how it's different than the humanitarian parole process that Afghans have been following? Yeah, so Uniting for Ukraine was announced after months of advocates 
for Afghans requesting a specialized parole program for Afghans and the United States government sort of coming back and saying, we don't have capacity for that. We don't have the resources for that. We can't get it done. Then fast forward and the United States announces the parole program for Ukraine that is specialized and I think quite similar to what advocates had been asking for for Afghans. One of the things that I want to make sure and note is that we at Vecina and, and sort of our, our network of advocates generally are not in any way saying, well, Ukrainians shouldn't have a specialized parole program. You know, the ask here is to say that all displaced persons or Ukrainians and Afghans, those subject to forced migration due to violence and war, should be allowed to seek safety in the United States because that's part of the moral fabric of our country. So anyway, now that I've said that and made sure that that's clear, the parole program for Ukrainians, in contrast to the sort of standard humanitarian parole procedures that Afghans have been using, the Ukrainian parole program does not require a filing fee. And so there's no money payment, there's no fee waiver request that you have to do if you can't pay the filing fee, it's just free. And so a petitioner, which is someone who is based in the United States and meets certain requirements, has to fill out a financial affidavit, basically, or a financial form that says that they have you know, certain assets or income and that they can provide support for a Ukrainian person if they come to the United States for a certain period of time. That same, that same type of form, it's not actually exactly the same form because the form has changed since since Afghans were using it on a widespread basis. But a similar type of form was required for the Afghan humanitarian parole. But then in addition, Afghans had to prove that they had an urgent humanitarian reason or a significant public benefit that required entry into the United States and met the standard of humanitarian parole. And so the uh, Ukrainians do not have to prove that. Another thing that's really different is you know, for humanitarian parole that's filed the way many Afghans were, it required certain, um, certain security checks at a consulate or embassy of the United States. And so Afghans that were in hiding in Afghanistan were unable to complete that process because the consulate in Kabul is closed. And so therefore what the government was doing or is doing is sending what are called administrative closure notices to Afghans that are in hiding that even may be eligible for an approval of humanitarian parole. And they said, whoops, sorry, you're not able to get out. And so we can't complete processing and background checks. And so therefore, you know, let us know when you get out. And that's not the way that this is happening for Ukrainians. The way that it happens for Ukrainians is if a US-based petitioner, if they file their form online for free, the beneficiary, so that's the Ukrainian, will get a notice if the if the petition was sort of approved or passed muster that basically says, beneficiary, Ukrainian, you need to go online and you need to uh, basically confirm the data that's been entered about you. And then they get a computerized, like something via email or online that allows them to just go to the airport, which is very, very, very different than it has been for Afghans. Again, thousands and thousands of which are still in hiding in Afghanistan. Yeah, and I think that also points to one of the other stark differences between the programs is that the Uniting for Ukraine program, people are getting decisions quickly. Meanwhile, yes. it is now July of 2022 and the vast majority of the, again, close to 50,000 
Afghan applications have still not been adjudicated and are sitting in giant piles, I guess, somewhere at USCIS, not clear what they're doing with them, but like they have not adjudicated the vast majority. And again, they collected over $20 million in fees for the processing of those applications and that just hasn't happened. And meanwhile, um, life in Afghanistan is extremely dangerous and there have been numerous reports of Afghans who have applied for humanitarian parole and who have been killed while waiting for decisions on their applications. Yeah, I mean, it's really unsettling. And, you know, to think that that many applications have been filed and not adjudicated when people are dying is, is deeply disturbing. Again, especially since our government has shown that when the political will is there, the government can and will increase their capacity and welcome displaced persons. And so it's it's been a, a deeply disturbing experience to watch. And we hope that the government will change course, even though we are not particularly optimistic. I do want to note that, was it last week, Jenny, that the government quietly changed their guidance? Yes. So last week, the government quietly changed its guidance for humanitarian parole, again, after months and months and months of advocacy, that appears to be a little bit more generous in its adjudication of humanitarian parole applications. So Jenny, what's the sort of general consensus about, about that? Well, the general consensus is that the guidance, it appears that this may mean that um, it's gonna be easier for Afghans to have their humanitarian parole applications approved, but I think everybody is feeling uh, pretty burned at this point. And so there's no, you know, it's kind of like wait and see what USCIS decides to do with this. Um, again, so far they've approved so few that nobody has a huge amount of confidence. They just kind of quietly change the standards on their page without making any other kind of announcement about what it means. So everybody's kind of taking a wait and see approach. And the, the other thing that I just want to make clear to everyone before we, before we finish is that um, for the people who are applying for humanitarian parole, you know, you might wonder, well, do they have some other means to get to the United States? Um, and so for some people who are applying for humanitarian parole, there really isn't any other pathway that's open to them right now. There are other people who've applied for humanitarian parole that may have a pathway in the future to the United States, but it's gonna take so many years for them to be processed that way that they you know, are in serious danger before that happens. So there are say family members of people who were evacuated back in, uh, back last year. So maybe, you know, a husband got evacuated to the United States and his spouse and children are back in Afghanistan. And that's very common. Lots of families were separated in the chaos and madness of the evacuation. Um, so that spouse in the United States then has to go through kind of a complicated legal process in the US to be in a position to sponsor their spouse and children to come over to the US. They might have to say, apply for asylum in the US. And that's a complicated process that can take a while. And then even when that happens, then, then you get approved for asylum, which again, takes a while. Then there's this whole other paperwork that has to be filed, a form, and that takes actually years 
to bring your spouse and child over to the United States. Um, so for some people, again, filing for humanitarian parole, they don't have another pathway. Other people might have a pathway, but it's going to take years. And they're really feeling as if your family doesn't necessarily have years to spend waiting around for that. Yeah, I think there are non-immigrant visas. I mean, tourist visas generally are not being issued. But you know, there's there's work visas and things of that nature. But they're very very specific sub subsets of people, and the vast major vast majority are not going to qualify. And so, unfortunately, humanitarian parole is the only what we thought would be timely avenue for people to seek safety in the United States. And we have clearly seen that that just hasn't happened, and so many are left behind. Yeah, and there was you know. The people who made it to the United States were the ones who were lucky enough to be able to get on the planes that the U.S. was flying out, but there were only a finite number, but there were far more people who really would have and should have qualified to be on those planes, but just weren't lucky enough to make it then. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Inadmissible. We look forward to bringing you more episodes, and we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast. To learn more about how to get involved with Vecina's work, visit vecina.org. That's V-E-C-I-N-A dot O-R-G. See you next time.